Welcome to Founders Focus, a podcast made for founders by founders. I'm Scott Case, CEO and co-founder of Upside, and I created Founders Focus to help share free resources and actionable advice. Together, we're building a community for business leaders, entrepreneurs, and founders to come together to tackle today's challenges. This podcast is powered by my awesome team at Upside. Please visit foundersfocus.com to join the live video sessions or to catch up on past topics. Um, and with that, I am absolutely thrilled to, uh, to introduce our co-host for today. Uh, his name is Jeff Grant, and he's the co-founder and minister at Progressive Prison Ministries. And uh, Jeff's going to introduce himself, and we're going to talk about um, a lot of different things. But believe it or not, we're actually going to talk about mo- mostly about Jeff's startup, because he's basically got a basically the founder of an organization, happens to be a ministry focused on some very interesting topics, but we're going to dive in from there. But Jeff, why don't you just give a brief intro about uh, about you? Scott, thanks for having me. And um, thanks for acknowledging that uh, I'm I'm a startup because um, I recognize that I'm a trailblazer doing something that no one's done before. Um, And, uh, and, that has some issues uh, attached to it. It also has opportunities. So uh, I'm, I'm balancing those every day. I went to prison for white collar crime. I committed SBA loan fraud post 9-11 uh, back in 2001. And I wound up going to prison for it, came out and uh, went to seminary, actually graduated seminary. And then after a, a couple of rounds in different churches and different faith-based organizations, my wife and I started a ministry to serve white collar criminals and their families. Very misunderstood, mis, uh, um, underrepresented group of people who people kind of associate necessarily with uh, Bernie Madoffs and all kinds of sensationalized headlines that you read about um, you know, in, uh, in the Wall Street Journal or on CNBC. But the reality is, is that the overwhelming majority of people who are uh, prosecuted for white collar crimes are pretty much people down the street, attorneys, accountants, parents of your children's friends who've made some mistakes. Uh, sometimes it's because of mental illness. Sometimes it's because of, of uh, drugs and alcohol. Sometimes it's greed or just desperation or just caught up kind of in the, this this crazy societal need to get ahead, and um, they're incapable of uh, of handling it. Like me, that's what happened. So um, we dedicate ourselves to uh, a long view of the process. So, like anyone who goes through these things, what happens is that they hire a lawyer and they don't want to go to prison and. The lawyer takes them to sentencing and then they leave off like Robert Redford at the end of the candidate saying, all right, what do I do now? And we take the long view. And so the the most important thing for us is that nobody 10 years later is looking back at their uh, trajectory or their journey and saying, if only I had known then what I know now, I would have made a lot of decisions differently. So we try to provide them the, uh, the perspective and uh, coach them all the way through all these different decisions and provide them a lot of resources, introductions to a lot of professionals. And um, we've been doing it for uh, five or six years full time now. Uh, Last Tuesday night, uh, last Monday night, we had our 250th white collar support group online. So it's the right week to be talking to you. Uh, That's awesome. It's a look as a, as an entrepreneur 
And, and I think, uh, like you said, it's a range of people, you know, it's very easy to see how, uh, how business leaders, even those that are well-intentioned get themselves upside down. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I suspect that a lot of your, um, your members or your customers, um, you know, we're surprised at how far it got it, how far, how quickly and how bad it got. Um, you know, one of the things that happens a lot as entrepreneurs is we, we sort of put ourselves out there. We have a, you know, sort of a big dream. We go to build a thing and things don't always go the way we expect, right? There's that, you know, that old that analogy of you, you, you jumped off the cliff and you're building the plane or the parachute on your way down. And exactly. Um, sometimes you don't actually accomplish that and you end up hitting sort of the bottom. So can you talk a little bit about staying within that entrepreneurial zone? Like what are some of the things that you've observed and maybe what are the signs to be paying attention to if you're in a spot that could kind of get you into trouble? I, I was uh, giving a lecture to a class at a uh, university in um, Pennsylvania not that long ago. And one of the students asked me, if, you, if there was one thing you learned from all of this, what would it be? And I didn't have to hesitate. You know, I said, I would live within my means. And so probably that and marry the right person. Um, two critical decisions. Um, it seems to me that what everyone does is they, 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 they're spending or they're projecting or as entrepreneurs, they always think that things are going to be better than tomorrow than they are today. And in a way, as an entrepreneur, you have to do that. You have to, you have to be positive. You have to be optimistic. But what you can't be is um, a dreamer. You know, you can't have, uh, uh, you know, the, so rose-colored glasses so that you can't see the red flags that are ahead of you. You know, uh, every, flag is, every flag is the same. Red flags are the same color if, um, if you're wearing rose-colored glasses. Um, so many times people know that they're pushing ethical borders, but they can uh, make excuses. Um, that's what the standard is in my industry. Everybody's doing it. Um, I'll do it just once and then never do it again. Oh my God, just over and over and over again. Um, that was true for me. Um, I think what really interests me about the conversation with you and, and certainly the prep conversation we had before this uh, a couple of weeks ago was that it's, it's challenged me to look at the difference between the advice and resources I give to other people and then what's authentic to me, what's true for me, what have my strength, what are my strengths and my barriers? And because I don't want to be destined to do it again. You know, that, that, the worst of all possible things is that I do it again. So uh, um, I'm happy to talk about that. But yeah. um, I've, I've actually had some awakening since you and I last spoke. Oh, well, that's good. Well, let's let's come to that. We got a, we've got a, a question here around what what does progressive prison ministries do? And I think if I can play it back, you can just confirm this. This is somebody has been charged or committed or has recognized that they've committed a white collar crime and is trying to figure out what to do about it. You sort of pick up from there and take them forward. Is that a 
pretty accurate description? Yeah, I think that other words could be uh, in different contexts, could be consigliere, could be someone who um, I, uh, they strap. If you're swimming with piranhas, it's good to have a shark you're strapping to your leg to protect you. The thing is, is that when you get um, prosecuted for white collar crime, you become completely isolated. Don't uh, friends probably abandoning you, business relationships abandoning you, even family members abandoning you. Your lawyer is telling you not to speak to anybody, and you're living in this vacuum in your own head. But there's so many decisions that have to be made, and your criminal lawyer is not going to be the one to help you through virtually any of them, except for what's a direct line to sentencing. So if you have a business, you have partners, you have real estate relationships, you maybe you're going to have to get a divorce, maybe you're going to have to talk to bankruptcy people, all kinds of business decisions, and then emotional decisions. And where do you turn to be able to have an outlet so that you can actually survive all of this. And since we're also trying to shepherd people from material ways of life to more spiritual ways of life, and that is from a life of more to a life of abundance, which we can talk about. Um, how do you do that? I mean, when your entire life has basically been dedicated to business or to narcissistic kind of, um, of, uh, um, of things that you would do to support that lifestyle. And then all of a sudden you're told by maybe a licensing authority, oh, by the way, you can't do that anymore. And what are you looking at? What does the abyss look like? And how frightening is that? And so mostly what we're doing with people is getting them into radical acceptance of reality. This is your situation. This is it. And you can mourn the past as much as you want, or you can project the future. But the reality is right now, what do you need to do right now to benefit you and your family the most? And to a person of the hundreds of people we've worked with, nobody can answer that question living in isolation. Everybody's got to come into community. Otherwise, they're, they're just bouncing off the walls themselves and um, they make bad decisions. I think, I think a lot of founders, and we've talked about this here too, even when you're staying within the you know, in the lanes from an ethical or moral and a fiscal standpoint, it's, you're still often isolated as an entrepreneur. So the combination of being isolated and being in your own head as an entrepreneur, and then also finding yourself upside down with the law, uh, those, you've got compounding errors on top of it, which has to make it that much more difficult. Um, I want to, I want to shift gears a little bit, and then we'll come back around to the ministry again in a, in a more formal way. We've got a few other questions, but when, when we were speaking last, you, um, you brought something up that I think is a common challenge for a lot of entrepreneurs. And that is we build something usually with a small team, maybe it's ourselves and a co-founder, two or three people. And we get to a place where we need to figure out how to scale ourselves. 
And I see this a lot with entrepreneurs who are like the head salesperson, which is often the case when you're first starting out. I'm the one going and getting new business, but at some point I've got to hire somebody to go get that new business. And in almost every case, that somebody is going to be half as good as you are on their best day. And so, you know, and we, we, we titled this we titled this session, like, how do you grow your business without losing your soul? It's a little play on you know, the fact that you're a ministry, but like, we all face this thing where it's like, it's, we're so embroiled in our business. How is it possible that we're going to be able to extend that to somebody else? So I'm curious, like, how are you wrestling through that? What, what sort of choices are you making or what challenges are you facing as you think through what that means for your business? It's a massive problem. It is, uh, especially as, as a trailblazer, as someone who's no one's ever done what I'm doing before. So, and this isn't just like in a, a business setting where it's Airbnb, for example, where no one's ever done that before, even though other people did do that before them. You know, here, here people are putting their lives in my hands. So I have to be paying very close attention Um. But even I made mistakes in the way that I, I, I looked at people. For example, most people who commit white collar crimes either are or generally were affluent. And so one of the reasons that there's very little compassion or empathy is because there's a lot of schadenfreude. People are looking at at, at, the, at the rise and fall of successful people and there's some kind of some kind of sick joy that people take in that. But even I was looking at the people I work with as, as uh, wealthy people, as people with a lot of resources. And the reality is, is that in the, in the sum game of all of this, all the chips have been moved to the other side of the table. So the really people who have very limited resources and in some ways, they have less resources even than people who live, say, in the inner city who have inner city problems. Because those, uh, those communities, unfortunately, have a lot of, um, of built-in kind of, of, of understanding of the criminal justice system. Or there are actual resources, social services and things that are going on. It took me a while to figure out that I was actually looking and working with a community of people who have less, not who have more. So how do I deal with impoverished people, even if they don't look like they're impoverished? They could be wearing nice clothes, but what they don't have, they may not have money anymore. They may not be able to protect themselves. They may not be able to advance their lives. And so I started to examine what happens in other liminal communities and um, particularly what I did was I studied the underground economy of the way that people get ahead and even in the immigration world. And what they do is they can't afford lawyers. They can't afford to be able to protect themselves. So what they have is clinics. And so there'll be 30 or 40 of them in a room with one person in the front of the room who is the facilitator, who's the, who's the professional and they talk about their problems and they talk about their issues all together. And what happens is, is that they can afford to do that or they're underwritten by the state sometimes, but they can afford to do that because they're all together. 
that was the reason really that we started the support group. So it wasn't just that we wanted a, say an AA kind of support group where people just discuss their feelings. What we wanted it was to be a real place where people could actually get resources and get feedback and could grow as a community and learn the things about what their issues are that they wouldn't learn anywhere else because your lawyer's not gonna tell you. Your lawyer is there, he's a mechanic, he's there for a specific job. But how are you gonna grow and learn through all of this? And we found that if we do it in community, we can solve that problem. And so on any given time, although we come together for an hour and a half every Monday night, everybody has created their own relationships and side relationships and brought resources to one another. And it really exists. It's this kind of amorphous organic mass of people trying to lift each other up and help each other. That's a miracle that I don't take responsibility for. I just happen to have seen it and brought it together. But the truth is, is that without everybody's buy-in, it doesn't work. So there's an example of solving a problem that I didn't even know was a problem until I started to dissect it. I like what you did there, because I think that one of the things when we look at scaling is rather than trying to replicate yourself, what you did was you looked at your customer base and said, okay, how can the customers play a role in helping to solve this, th th this problem? And exactly. you see this like, large tech companies. Like if you've ever gone into Apple forums, most of the questions that are being asked and answered are being asked and answered by Apple customers. Um, and it's, it's a community that has been built around them. When you look at your own personal as the, you know, the CEO of your business, how are you thinking about, because, you know, you do have the group sessions, but you also take on individual clients that you're coaching through this process yes. and giving them feedback on. So, how, how are you thinking about bringing on another person to help take on some of those clients and, and what's your strategy there? Well, it's the biggest single problem. And that kind of goes back to the, the two weeks of, of enlightenment I've had since you and I last spoke. Because what I've come to understand, because I was asking myself that question because you asked me that question a couple of weeks ago. And what I've come to understand is that I'm a world-class number two. I am, I am the person that you want to have helping you solve your problems. But there's a, there's a difference between that and being in the decision-maker role where, where there's no one doing the job that I do. And well, I look back at my business because we had a, a, I had a sizable business. I had 20 people working for me and we were general counsel to some large corporations, some of whom got into big trouble, by the way, which is how I learned all of this when I was general counsel for those companies. And now I'm looking at my, my, my skill set and my skill set is to basically take anybody who's underwater and help them get to the surface and, and, so just that means swimming around things. That means understanding the nature of that. But th they need to get to the surface to breathe. But once they're at the surface, I'm not sure I'm the guy who's equipped to help them soar. So is there a business 
in helping people get to the surface? And the answer is yes, because there are millions of people who need to get to the surface because they're drowning. The problem is I have to soar. I have to be the one to soar. Otherwise I can't build a business out of getting people to the surface. That's been the trick that I have, the problem I have found in scaling. So do I think that I'm repl replicable? Well, I, I think it would be really arrogant to believe that many of the things that I do for people can't be replicated. And I've set out on a path to do that. So I, even on my podcast, I've interviewed forensic accountants. I interview investigators. Everybody who's involved in the various aspects of white collar crime or investigating or getting down to the, to the, 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 the kernel, the charisma of what's really going on with people. Um, which is what the key to all of this is in helping them solve their problems because they're extremely complicated. Do I think that there are other people who are, who are capable of, of solving these problems for people? Yes. Do I think that they're, the combination of that and having like bedside manner so that you can actually shepherd them through their problems and they'll trust you? It's hard. It's hard. So I, I love your insight um, and I'm going to play it back to you a little. I think understanding as a leader, even if you're the founder or you're the owner of your business, what you're really good at, you may not be the right person to be the CEO of the ministry, right? You may need to go out and hire somebody who's going to be that leader and be the decision maker. And you actually see that if you zoom way out, if you're any of you are familiar with Microsoft, you know, Bill Gates stepped out. And, and basically became like the chief architect or whatever his title was, but it got to that business got to a place where he was the wrong person to be running it anymore and mm -hmm. sort of looked at what his strengths were. And so I think understanding what your strengths are, there's a question here about, you know, how do you let go, right? So you want to bring somebody else on to take, take responsibility for something. And what's interesting is in your case, Jeff, you need to let go of the leadership responsibility of the whole organization, which is a big lift, right? Most of the time as entrepreneurs, we're paying out parts of the business as quickly as we can to get somebody else to take them on. And so to the, to the question we got around, around trust, the, the most important thing you could do is to set clear expectations for the person, make sure that they have ownership, which is both responsibility and authority, and then let them go and check in on the expectations as you go along, but you have to let go. If you try to micromanage them to death, you, you'll just, you'll fail. They'll fail and you'll fail. You're setting them up for failure. So my counsel on that is when you parcel it out, set clear expectations and give them the responsibilities that you want. And then they have to have the authority to actually execute, which means if that means they have to have a budget or they have to have access to tools or information or whatever else, they've got to be able to get there. So I, I want to come back to, to, to Jeff, a couple of questions that you've that have come up as we've gone along the way. So I think there's still a question around sort of the services that the ministry uh, provides, which I, I think is basically like a form of executive coaching through the process, connecting them with resources, making sure that they have access to information, somebody to talk to when things happen. Um, is there is there more to it on the individual basis? There's the support group, which you talked about, but 
Is there a, a roadmap you typically lay out for someone when they come to you and say, hey, I've, I've committed this crime. I need help getting through this time. I, the answer to that is yes, but it's largely dependent upon what the point of entry is. Because it's very easy to see, like in your mind, someone gets arrested and then they're looking for resources. But the reality is, is that they get arrested and mostly it's um, fight, flight, or freeze. And mostly freeze. So these people are in trauma. And so much trauma and they have to make decisions very quickly. So typically what happens is that someone gets arrested, the FBI taps them on their shoulder and who's that first phone call gonna go to? And it's gonna go to someone they trust. It's gonna go to their corporate lawyer if they're a business person. It's gonna go to someone else they know who's been in similar, a similar situation. And that person is going to say to them something like, you got to call John Smith. He's the lawyer for you. And they go and they have, and they take the interview with John Smith and, and there's no way for them to know if John Smith is the right lawyer for them. They don't know what the rubric should look like. They don't know what their issues are. They don't know if this guy ha has the right background. They don't know if he's got the right temperament. They can work together because this is a very intimate relationship. So what I would love to tell everybody is call me. I, I understand. I've worked with over 400 people who've been through this. I've been through it myself. And I can, I can nurse you through this type of decision. Since 50% of the people who hire um, white collar attorneys wind up changing attorney, okay, close to 100% of people sitting in a prison camp somewhere or sitting around talking about how, how the mistakes that their attorneys made or the mistakes they made in hiring their attorneys, you have to understand the gravity of this decision. That's true of every single decision along the way. So more as we become more established and as we've become a go-to, a, a point of entry, people are relying upon us and on me because we have, we have a team, but they're relying upon us for micro decisions around a macro plan. And, and that's critical. So is it success coaching? You know, yes, we are definitely helping people move towards their own authenticity and towards a, towards a, a life plan that works for them. But mostly what we're doing is we're balancing tactics and strategy to get them to a, to get them through a very very hairy part of their life, at a time when they're in such trauma that they can't even trust themselves. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the the part about it is, I think, and one of the questions that came up here is, and I'd like to see if we can get to it. If not, maybe we'll have you back again. But I think that there's you're really running a trauma emergency room yeah. where you're helping get this person to, to sort of be back on their feet. You're not trying to get them to figure out how to rebuild their life just yet. You're just trying to make sure that they survive 
whatever has happened, you know, the, the, the car accident equivalent at the emergency room. So it's about patching the person up and getting them through this stuff to figure out who the specialists are, who are the experts, et cetera. And when they don't have anybody, it's a little unhinged. There's, there's, a, lot, there's a lot of triage. There is. Yeah. So I want to come to a question that's, I'm going to frame it the way it's been framed around. You've been sentenced or you've, you've uh, served your time as a white collar criminal. Mm -hmm. um, uh, how do you restart? And, and that, the, the framing to me is even when you don't, even if you haven't committed any wrongdoing at all, but you had to shut your company down, right? There's this, if you want to restart again, you've got to rebuild things. And so what do you think are the one or two most important things to do once you're above that surface and maybe you've sort of come out of it and you've been through that and I'm sure you've observed your clients, what are the some of the important things. And I imagine one of them is you, if they've done it well, they've recognized that and they've owned their situation. That's probably the first thing, but what are some of the other pieces that they, that a person needs to do to start to rebuild and maybe start another company or restart their mm -hmm. lives? Some of this is going to sound um, philosophical because we're not relating it to a specific set of circumstances. But the first thing is to give up the concept of rebuilding anything because there's no looking back. There's only looking forward. And the great mistake that people make is thinking that they want to get back to their old life. <laughs> what we have is a new life and we don't know what that looks like yet, but most of that old life is generally not available. It's just not there. It's, 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 you have to give up, hope for a better past. It just doesn't exist. So what does that mean? And part of it is understanding that, you know, we live so long these days that almost everyone goes through some kind of life altering event where you live two lives. The problem is, is the attachment to the old life. So if you're going to be, for example, a hedge fund manager in one life and a janitor in another life, I don't know many janitors who would mind becoming a hedge fund manager in their second life. I probably know a lot of hedge fund managers who would mind becoming a janitor in their second life. And yet those two lives may have very little to do with one another, no matter what, because of just all of the life circumstances that happened in between. And so what does the new life look like or the new business look like? And so the concept of rebuilding is something that we, we really do work with people on. The second is that it's like putting your hand under, under water, under a flow of water. If it's scalding hot or it's icy cold, it feels the same. Our nerve receptors feel it the same way. So at the extremes, we, we, um, we're afraid of the extremes and we don't understand the extremes. And when people come out of prison, because there's the context we're talking about, but it can be through any life, uh, life altering experience, we confuse limited opportunities with limitless opportunities. So there we are coming out of prison and we think, oh my God, I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't do that. And the truth is there was a whole set of things that you couldn't do before even before you had your problems. I was never going to be a brain surgeon. I was never going to be a 
classical pianist. There are a lot of things I couldn't do. But now to frame life as things that I can't do, as opposed to starting to embrace the things that are out there, um, it's a difficult thing for most people. And I'll, and, I, and I'll tell you what that comes down to, Scott. Um, what it really comes down to is that people have forgotten the path, the, the thing that made them successful to begin with. Because almost everybody didn't go to college and then, and then made, their, made their livelihood or made their success in the thing they went to college for. They, went, they tried one thing and then that led to another and then that led to another. And then three or four or five decisions down the road, you kind of find something that works and, and you become successful at it. But people are forced to start over and yet what they won't do is push themselves out into the middle of the river and then just let life's, life's decision-making just happen. They want to hit one out of the park right away. You know, they're going to make up for lost time. And that happens to very, very few people, you know, better to be a slap single hitter than a home run hitter, you know. That makes sense. So I want to, I want to see about kind of working up upstream a little bit for you. So you're operating in this emergency environment and, um, and you're taking people along as they come. Do you have ambitions to take the model that you've put together and, and help package it up so that either cities or states or other communities could take this on and extend, extend your reach? This is a question from the audience. Like, is there a way to work with local governments and, and state governments to, to sort of lay out these resources so that they can be made more readily available to more people? Um, the short answer to that is, I'm not sure I ever wanna do business with the government again. <laughs> It, it didn't work out so well the last time. Um, I do think that, I think that there's an important cautionary tale here and, and, and a way of running our lives and a kind of ethical standard in which we can run our lives that is useful if what we're gonna do is be prescriptive, if we're gonna be prophylactic. Like, so for example, I could, I could genuinely stand in front of the incoming class at Goldman Sachs, for example, there's a thousand people in the room and I could stand in front of them and say, 2% of you will be prosecuted in the next five years. All right, so what do you wanna do about it? And part of the problem there is that the benefits or the perceived benefits so outweigh the risk that Maybe they're willing to take the risk. Look, yeah. if, I, if I stand to make $30 million, maybe this is a risk worth taking. But I can tell you as someone who probably lost 40 or $50 million of, of lifetime earning potential, that the risk's not worth it. And it's not worth it in terms of, of, of uh, relationships, in terms of opportunities. It's not worth it. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't take appropriate risks. You shouldn't be thoughtful, that you shouldn't be a, an entrepreneur. What it means is, is that understand the risks and, and have a, a set of ethics that you don't, that you, that you don't depart from. Um, I would rather spend my, my life sorting uh, uh, sorting and saying no, 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 no to things that 
are not right for me and yes to the things, the few things that are, than spending my life trying to turn no's into yeses. Because once it's a no, you can, you can exhaust a lot of resources, a lot of energy trying to turn it into a yes. Um, that's, that may not be a macro business view, but from a personal ethics view, it's, it's horrifying. So do I think that there's a, 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 a wide audience for that message? Yes. Do I think that it's in the private sector? I definitely think it's in the private sector. Do I think that um, governments um, can learn from this? Well, I've spoken on behalf of the SBA, for example. The SBA, I'm, I'm a guy who took advantage of an SBA loan. They did their job. They gave me the money. I didn't, my, I didn't do my job. I didn't treat it the right way. Or I, and, and I lied on the application. So... So do, there's an example of outreach that could work really well that could wind up being a funnel of funnel of people who, who want to do well and want to do good and want to do it the right way. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a, the whole, the whole path of around ethics, a lot of M MBAs, you know, um, and universities are teaching ethics through this and trying to put people in the situations. But one of the big challenges, and I'm sure you see this, is you don't really know what you're going to do until you're in the situation, then it's for real, right? Where you're making that choice of $30 million for me and I've only got a 2% chance of getting caught. I'm not the one who's going to get caught. It's a little bit like, I think I mentioned this in another, in another episode here where one of the Ivy Leagues did a study of all their MBAs and asked them based on, they asked them a question about their judgment. Was their judgment above the average of the other people in their MBA class? And every one of them thought that they were above average, which of course is a violation of the concept of what an average is. Um, they could at least have said that they were at the median, but you know, it's, I think we all think that we're going to be able to, you know, solve the problem in some way. And we cross those lines. Well, well here's an easy way to look at it. The term business ethics probably means self-policing, right? There's ethics and business ethics shouldn't be different than ethics. But what, what, when the concept of business ethics came along in the 1950s, when B-schools started to teach business ethics, right. what it really meant was we're departing from the concept of seminary-based morals and ethics that were at the heart of the university system 100 years earlier. So now we're going to police ourselves. We're going to create what business ethics means. And we'll adhere to that. Well, I don't want to go into a whole conversation about capitalism. But the point is, the point is, is that either it's right or it's wrong. And at least you should have that guide inside. And if it's touching on the wrong part, maybe it's something to look at. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And so we'll land on that spot because I think that that's the, that's the key judgment for people is if it feels like it's wrong, it probably is. And, uh, you know, you just stay away from it. Uh, well, I really appreciate you being here, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There were a bunch of questions from folks. We'll probably post some things in LinkedIn and um, you can obviously check out um, uh, Jeff's website. He's got a podcast, as he mentioned. Uh, so if you want to listen to some of those, there were some questions about 
PPP loans. Um, Jeff's done a session on them. We've done some sessions on them. So I'm uh, happy to get you resources there. And uh, we posted in the chat uh, the link to Jeff's website, which is just prisonist, P-R-I-S-O-N-I-S-T.org. Uh, and with that, thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Founders Focus. What did you think? You got any feedback for us? Got a topic that you'd like us to discuss? Or maybe a future co-host? We'd love to hear from you. Just hit me up on LinkedIn at T. Scott Case and uh, join us at foundersfocus.com to stay up to date with the latest episodes and join us live every week at our Founders Focus sessions. Hope to see you there.